Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Day something of isolation. Uh, things are going well. My dad is just teaching my kids via Zoom. He's got this. He's got this thing where he can Zoom, and then he's got this PowerPoint. He's doing a PowerPoint. The guy is eighty-one years old, about to be eighty-two. He's got a PowerPoint on his desktop, which he's Zooming to his grandkids who are in London, at my house, which is in the south of England, and his other grandkids in Toronto, Canada. And he's Zooming to all of those guys, and he's got PowerPoints. He's got images he's assembled. And he's currently talking to them about the Norman Conquest post 1066. So he's done, he did Norman, he did 1066 yesterday. He's now telling them about things like the harrying of the north and the pacification of the southwest of England. Bear in mind his grandkids are ranging in age from four to eight. It might be a little bit overkill, but it's keeping him busy. It's keeping the kids fascinated for various reasons. And it's giving me time to talk to you. On this podcast, we are talking to Tracy Borman. Uh, Tracy Borman is the Joint Chief Curator at Historic Royal Palaces. She does that work alongside Lucy Worsley. She is a brilliant historian and author. I met her a long, long time ago. I met her, I mean, depressingly, it's probably 20 years ago now, when she and I were both starting out on a kind of career of public history. She has gone to write far more distinguished books than I have. That's for darn sure. She's written a brilliant book called Elizabeth's Women, about the women that were gathered around Elizabeth's throne as she ruled England in the late 16th century. And she's also an expert on Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell, she wrote a biography of, the untold story of Henry VIII's most faithful servant. Thomas Cromwell is the subject of three of the greatest books ever written in the English language beginning with Wolf Hall, ending just now in The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. Many of you will be reading them at the moment. Giant tomes to get through. This podcast is the perfect, perfect companion to that because I'm going to ask Tracy Borman what Hilary Mantel got right and what she got wrong. What do we know about Thomas Cromwell and why do we know it? We have had record numbers of people signing up to History Hit TV. I hope it's of some use to you as you're in your own homes. I hope it's helpful with the kids. We are working around the clock to allow educators to get access to that for free. So watch this space. In the meantime, anyone can get a month for free if they just use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. Go to historyhit.tv. It's like Netflix for history. You're all the back episodes of these podcasts without the ads. 
You've also got hundreds of history documentaries on there. We are doing our best. We're keeping the team together. We're doing our best to create more content during these trying times. I'm really happy that so many people are, are discovering it and recommending it to their friends. You can use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, so you get a month for free and then you get your first month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So two months for just one pound, euro or dollar, basically. That should take us through the bulk of this. And we'll also be launching very soon a History Hit Live on YouTube with one with our great YouTube partner, Timeline, the, the best YouTube uh, history channel out there. So it's all happening. So we're trying to satisfy everyone's history needs. In the meantime, though, enjoy this podcast with Tracy Borman. Tracy, God, it's so good to have you on the podcast. You haven't been on yet, I don't think. I know, I'm really excited to do it. So thanks for having me. You know, you're one of the first people I met in pu- public history in the UK. I mean, it's ridiculous. But you're now like the most distinguished historian in the world. So well done <laughs> on everything you've achieved. Well done on this book. People are talking about Thomas Cromwell a bit. I mean, you've obviously done something really special. Yes. So my original biography of Cromwell came out a few years ago. And I have to say that that was completely inspired by Wolf Hall. And reading the fictional account made me want to find out, OK, how much this is true so that's where that was my kind of jumping off point for writing the biography but then this new edition which has just come out entirely coincidentally on the same day as the mirror and the light includes a whole new set of material about Cromwell's London because from the kind of five years since it was first published I found people ask me about that more than anything else, what what London was like, what it was like to live in the city then, the, the kind of London that Cromwell would have known. And so I paint a bit of a picture of that in the latest book. OK, well, let's talk about the, the, the man and the city. Hilary Mantel's presentation of him is fairly friendly, I'd say. You're quite drawn to him as a character, his precipitous, basically his raw talent and ability, his extraordinary life journey, his ability to climb up the very restricted social, economic and political ladder of of Tudor England. Okay, so what did she get right? So I think she gets a lot right, because certainly when I was taught history, it was that Cromwell was the kind of villain. He was cutthroat, cynical, lined his own pockets on the Reformation, got rid of enemies without a thought. And then, of course, Hilary Mantel presents us with somebody completely different, as you say, like real hero for our time, very streetwise and funny and clever and all the rest of it. I think actually the real Cromwell was closer to the Wolf Hall version than the traditional version that we had read for many years in history books and kind of people who knew Cromwell but didn't like him who left behind much of the evidence of him he's not quite the hero that we see encapsulated in Wolf Hall and on our screens but as I say I think he is actually closer to that he was we know he was an incredibly clever man we know he's very principled He's not just using the Reformation for his own ends. He's paying out of his own pocket to get the word of God out to the people to translate the Bible into English. He sticks by his friends. He's just not that kind of cutthroat villain that we had been told about. But Hilary Mantel does forgive him for a few things that perhaps she oughtn't, notably the downfall of Anne Boleyn. I think much as I love Cromwell, I think he almost certainly was entirely responsible for that whether or not he had the order from henry to do it i think you know anne boleyn's death can be laid at his door and then in a wider sense what is right about the the, the henrician court about london about life i mean i've i've just finished men light and i just think it's just epic i, I don't understand why i mean i i love it and i was not surprised everyone else loves it but i'm surprised everyone else loves it as much as i do because most of these t- these tiny little references to the emperor that 
you know, the pilgrimage of grace. That, that it's a little bit. She doesn't explain. You know, she doesn't give it a strong narrative arc. It's just kind of weird. The rebels kind of come and go, and and yet because we know the history, we can enjoy that. But it it's just she gives that sense of what it was like to be in London at the time. The the, the Packington assassination is a fascinating one as well. What does she get right in terms of the, the, the wider societal and, and sort of court picture? I think she gets so much right. Her research is extensive and impeccable, but she sits quite lightly to it. As you say, some of the the bigger events, you know, that it's very you're not being lectured at when you read The Mirror and the Light. They're kind of woven in quite deftly. And I think, you know, it really shows that she has lived and breathed this period for many years, just interweaving the names of servants that she's got from his household accounts, as well as the bigger events that, that we know were going on at the time. But I think it's it's such a masterpiece and I think it can be enjoyed both by those who know the period and those who just like good fiction her style of writing is so extraordinary it kind of draws you in and and I think obviously the thing is it's a real achievement to write a book where everybody knows how it's going to end and for it still to be suspenseful and and a huge success because of course we know sorry spoiler alert but you know Cromwell dies and, and not very nicely and so that's how it's bound to end. And yet the suspense, I don't know about you, but I really felt all the way through. It's like, oh, no, that's going to go wrong. And she just puts a little marker down for something else that's going to come back and bite him. And she does it just so brilliantly that even though I obviously knew the events that were going to unfold, it still somehow came as a shock. Is the king's favour as important as she makes out? I mean, it does, it does feel like such a capricious place, you know, Henry's favour. Does it just come down to how the king felt about it on a very human level? I think it did. I think it was, this was the the age of personality, monarchy as well as politics, and Henry really was this great presence that, and his influence was everything and his favour was everything and he was increasingly fickle during these his his later years the last decade or so of his reign this covers part of that and absolutely everything revolves around who is in favour and everybody's watching who the king is taking notice of is showing signs of approval with and unfortunately Henry because he became increasingly paranoid just as his father Henry VII had been it was increasingly difficult to predict which way he was going to go and I think it was almost a case of divide and rule for Henry in his later years he he couldn't trust anyone he liked to pitch people against each other and so it was a tortuously difficult game trying to win favour in Henry's court and and if you lost then you would really lose everything. Did he execute more people than his, his dad or his son or his sisters? Yes. Why does he have such a reputation and not not with his wives but as a the head chopper offer of his of of his servants, of his, of his statesmen. Yeah, well, he did. I think it has been just about proven that he executed more people than any of the other Tudors. And I think that's very much bound up with what was going on with his religious and political changes, the Reformation. That actually set something up that people, if they opposed it could be executed for and so there were huge divisions in society lots of opposition to to Henry and his government so I guess there was more reason to rebel than there had been before and Henry couldn't be seen to to show mercy all the time he did sometimes but you know he had to get people to toe the line and the only way to do that was through fear in the end 
And hence you see the number of prisoners stacking up in the Tower of London and the number of executions too. So it was a really dangerous and brutal time. In the last book, there's a lot of discussion of the of the remnants of the Plantagenet family that he basically systematically kind of wipes out. Mm. Does a lot of it stem from his insecurity on the throne? Because we think of Henry as the most secure, <laughs> Holbein standing there, legs astride. Yeah. After the War of the Roses. And actually, the Tudors had, I think, you know, they have a better claim than most people make out. They, I think Henry VII had a half-decent claim to the throne. Anyway, but, and yet, did he feel this enormous insecurity? I think he did, right from the start. And I think he was made to feel that, not just because, he, you know, he's only the second Tudor and, and it's seen as still quite a fledgling dynasty. But the early death of his elder brother, Arthur, I think was a profound event in his life. And in a, a kind of shameless plug alert, I did explore that in some length in my latest non-fiction apart from Cromwell which is Henry VIII and the men who made him so all of these early influences were key and so the death of his brother Arthur when Arthur was 15 really had such an impact on Henry and of course he was then himself wrapped in cotton wool as the sole surviving male heir and that sense of insecurity really accelerated from that day forwards and and so he bought he was desperate for a male heir and even when Jane Seymour had given him Edward then he was obsessed with having a spare heir because of what had happened to his elder brother he knew you needed a spare so even though yeah I agree with you you know their claim was pretty good you know who who's didn't have something dodgy somewhere along the line their claim was good but he needed this security of of not just one but but ideally two male heirs and of, of course he didn't get that the heir thing is is the source of instability i suppose just explain to us why was henry's heir situation so complicated and it comes through so much in this most recent mantel book as well cromwell's been expected to deal with this i'm professor Susanna lipscomb and on not just the tudors from history hit i'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, this was not an age and it wouldn't come for many years. When girls had equal precedence, they were seen as unfit to rule. You know, you'd only allow a girl to, to succeed if there was literally nobody else. And we didn't have very good precedence for this with the sort of Empress Matilda and the, the last woman to really hold the throne, not for very long. And so, you know, the Princess Mary, Henry's eldest child, was, was almost just discounted. It's like, well, if we really have to, we'll rely on her. But but women were seen as intellectually, physically weaker, weaker in every single sense. So it was all about the male 
heirs. And it was also reflected on Henry's potency as a king. And he didn't like it that he was having such trouble, apparently fathering male heirs. Hence, the wives get all the blame, and particularly poor old Anne Boleyn and Catherine before her. And then Anne of Cleves is, you know, the, famously the ugly wife. Henry couldn't bring himself to consummate the marriage. She gets all the blame, whereas probably he was suffering from impotence by that stage. That's the frustration is that Cromwell and then everybody else are trying to manage a very human, domestic, personal situation, but that has these implications of, of statecraft. The best description in that book was when the king, the, his morning ablutions and the doctor's looking at his urine in his stool and, and, and Cromwell goes, it's a shame he's not made of glass, you know, so you could just look inside yeah. and put simpler. <laughs> exactly. And it was, you know, there's nothing sacred in a way. When you're king, every single bit of you is, is subject to scrutiny. And Henry, even though he has this reputation, as you say, from the Holbein paintings as being this strident, self-confident king, he was actually actually fearful, incredibly fearful, and a real hypochondriac, more than any of the other Tudor monarchs put, put together. And this is in an age where people are generally quite obsessed with their health. But Henry was described, and I couldn't believe this quote, by somebody who visited him in private as being the most timid man you could hope to meet. And you just don't often apply that word to Henry. But he was, and he would have himself examined by his physicians every morning. He had a private medicine cabinet. He himself dabbled with making medicines and cures for the plague. He was absolutely obsessed with everything to do with his body, including, you know, his bowel movements, frankly, and, and those who served him had to be just as interested as he was. We're recording this during the corona crisis of spring 2020, and I was very struck in the book by how much mention there is of the sweats, of the flu, of the plague, of the mm. fevers. Goodness me, it gives you a different, yeah. This is a London that we've come to recognise again. Absolutely. This gives you a very different understanding a new understanding and you know this was commonplace really for the Tudors that the sweat came pretty much once a year and the plague was a regular visitor as well and they had to get used to kind of self-isolating or moving to the country or anything else but absolutely you can just imagine how much more terrifying it must have been in those days of sort of rudimentary medicine and, and a lack of understanding about what was spreading it and how to contain the spread. So it it does suddenly feel incredibly pertinent. And as you say, that is covered quite often in Hilary Mantel's last novel. You know, in your study of London at the time, I mean, did, did rich people just leave or were, or were active measures taken? Was it very seasonal? It was very seasonal. It tended to be summer. So it's kind of the opposite to the situation with the coronavirus in that the heat kind of literally fanned the flames of sickness rather than extinguishing them as we hope will happen this time. Yeah, if you're rich enough, you leave for the country. That's the safest thing you can do. Get away from the crush of bodies in London. There was a sense of quarantine that that helped, even if they didn't quite understand kind of why but there were also gross misinformation such as okay immediately stop washing because washing opens up the pores and enables infection to get in so that was kind of one of the really unfortunate pieces of misinformation but as with so many things the poorer you were the more at risk you were and and most of the deaths were amongst the poor members of society who just didn't have such access to an alternative living space really and were kind of you know crowded together in you know, London was still a very crowded city the population was obviously much lower than today but it's still you know proportionately at the most crowded city if not in the world then certainly in the UK. Talk to me about that you get the sense of a nexus in Mantel's work and of course in your work about how Cromwell sat between 
a court, a world of finance, a world of merchants, often Northern European merchants suffused with a bit of Protestantism, the Italian and French worlds as well. Did he sit at the centre of all these sort of overlapping circles? I think he did as much as possible. And I think what gave Cromwell a great advantage is his upbringing, because he was just this commoner who was looked down on by all the other more noble members of Henry's court. But unlike them, he'd had the sort of ultimate gap year, if you like, or gap decade. He'd, he'd taken himself off to the continent when he was very young, spent many years travelling around Italy and, and France and the Netherlands, picking up contacts along the way, uh, becoming very cultured. No wonder he was able to be a successful merchant when he got back because of all of that experience that he'd garnered. And I think that gave him this cosmopolitan outlook that most other men at Henry's court entirely lacked. They were still very kind of flag-waving, xenophobic, you know, let's wage war on the Scots and the French, whereas Cromwell seemed to have a, a bigger world view and, and this incredible network of informers and contacts and reformists. You know, he was getting all these banned books somehow smuggled in and he had them in his library in Austin Friars and his other houses. So I think Cromwell was just an incredibly impressive man. He'd had an education like no other, certainly very, very unlike he should have had as the apprentice of his father, a blacksmith. What's the relationship between Henry and his capital city, London? I mean, it feels like Cromwell is more comfortable on the streets of London than Henry ever was. Henry circulates around the edges, spends as much time as he can outside it. So in your work on London, how is it a, an anarchic place where the royal writ is a bit unsteady? Yeah, I mean, certainly you're right in that Cromwell's much more at home in London than Henry is. Henry is seen by his people, but only really when he's moving between his various London palaces, you know, Hampton Court, Whitehall, Greenwich, etc. He's not really a, a man of London in the same way as Cromwell was, even though he was born there. And of course, a lot of that is for reasons of security and to keep himself safe from disease and the riffraff and all the rest of it. Um, but I think Henry was increasingly fearful. And certainly after the Pilgrimage of Grace, which really shook him, this first major act of rebellion among his people. And suddenly, this man who'd taken the love of his people for granted was suddenly caused to to question everything and just how popular he was and were there going to be assassination attempts. And so he did retreat into himself more and more. And at Hampton Court in recent years, we discovered his private apartments. Now, that might sound a bit odd. Surely we knew they were there. Well, we had actually misidentified them for years. But we have positively identified what's known as the Bain Tower as being Henry's former private apartments. And he built that towards the last decade of his reign because he was retreating more and more, not just from London, but from the public in general. He was becoming more fearful. He was becoming more sick, actually, after his jousting accident and his rapid weight gain. He was a man in pain with his ulcerated legs. So you do get the sense that he's increasingly reclusive in a way that Cromwell never was. He's still travelling around London on his mule and uh, up and down the river, between palaces. He never stops. He absolutely never stops, whereas Henry increasingly retreats into himself. The traditional understanding of Cromwell is, A, he is almost responsible for the for the lurch towards Protestantism, and Henry, who was slightly more uncertain about the direction he wanted to take his Reformation. The other idea is that Cromwell massively enhances the power of Parliament and the sort of place of Parliament within the British Constitution, English Constitution. What What is Cromwell's legacy, do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think it is a twofold legacy, really. I think it is it is the religious aspect and certainly his changes that he ushered in. And, and they are all drafted in his hand, really, that the sort of reformation parliaments that were held, all of those statutes. Cromwell was instrumental in getting those drafted and pushed through. So you know, he might not be alone responsible for the for the birth of Protestantism in England, but he really helped it along. And as I said earlier, you know, just paying out of his own pocket to have the Bible translated translated was a huge step and it shows his commitment but yes the growth of parliament as well and and I love this fact because it is Cromwell who first realizes parliament as a force to be reckoned with as opposed to somebody who just you know rubber stamps whatever the king wants which really had been in the past by and large whereas now it's a real political force thanks to the power that Cromwell gave it during the reformation and the reason I love this fact is of course that was realised to its ultimate degree by his descendant and namesake, Oliver Cromwell. And they were related. I'm often asked, were the two Cromwells related? They were. But through Cromwell's nephew, Richard, who actually was Richard Williams, but changed his name to Cromwell. So if, strictly speaking, it ought to be Oliver Williams, the great Civil War leader, not Oliver Cromwell. That's interesting. And Richard is the one who features in the books as well. Yes, exactly. He's rightly given a major role because he was in Cromwell's service and he doted on his uncle. He was very loyal to him. And that's why, you know, he he chose to change his name from Williams to Cromwell as an indication of loyalty to his uncle. Of course, it did him you know, quite a few favours personally as well. You, you're going to want the name Cromwell when uh, Thomas Cromwell is at his height. But yeah, absolutely. Cromwell had this network, as I think Mantel shows very deftly, of these young men, early career, if you like, all very very keen and eager and will work around the clock like Cromwell does but they're all loyal to him and I think that speaks volumes about what sort of man Cromwell was he wasn't only loyal to other people he served but he inspired loyalty in those who served him whether it was Rafe Sadler or Richard Cromwell his nephew there's a whole raft of servants at all levels who just really almost worship the ground Thomas Cromwell walked on. Well, I'm a Cromwellite now, of course, having read your book and then that other little <laughs> book by Hilary Mantel, which I understand. Yeah, yeah the other insignificant um, Yours one, yeah. is called? Mine is called Thomas Cromwell, The Untold Story of Henry VIII's Most Faithful Servant. And that subtitle is a quote because Henry VIII too late realised what he'd done when he had Cromwell executed. He thought, you know, I'll just find somebody to replace him because Cromwell had replaced Wolsey very quickly. But of course, there was nobody. There was nobody even approaching Cromwell's genius to fill his shoes. And so Henry realised as well that the whole plot against Cromwell had been totally groundless. He was innocent, but he realised it all, of course, too late. And he was heard to lament the loss of the most faithful servant he had ever had. I have to say, Henry, I'm sorry, but it serves you right. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got no sympathy on Henry Tudor. Sorry about that. <laughs> OK, great. Thank you very much. Good luck with the book, Tracy. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. 
makes sense. But if you could just do me a favor, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.